0: It's been a while, fiends and familiars, but we're back with another episode of Gravely Unusual Lives. This episode we are joined with Curtis M. Lawson, author of Blackheart Boys Choir, The Bad World Series, and Devil's Night. Curtis has an upcoming short story collection called The Envious Nothing, a collection of literary ruin, due to be released from Hippocampus Press. Not only do we discuss his collection, we discuss the philosophies of weird fiction and much more. Got a, yeah. You got a new book coming out, um, the, the Envious Nothing, right? Yes, um, The
1: Envious Nothing, a collection of literary ruin.
0: Are these a little more, um, are these different than your... Your last collection which which devil's night and then you also had you know your your novels and stuff does this collection seem different than than your last work
1: yeah well it's definitely a little bit different than devil's night um devil's night was a little bit more cohesive because it all took place over the course of a single night you know it was all over the course of devil's night in 1987 and um the stories there were some some overlap with reoccurring characters, or some event from one story might be referenced in another. In um, Devil's Night was all really urban horror, because it all took place in Detroit. So this is um, different in the way that, you know, the stories are all independent stories. They're, they're not tied together, but there is kind of a loose theme of nothingness um, as both a force, of, like a malevolent force, but also as a um, as a force of unrealized potential. So that kind of threads throughout the the book and you see this idea of nothingness explored in different ways. And there's also a reoccurring figure of Angra Boda, which is, a giantess from Norse mythology. She's Loki's wife, the mother of all monsters, um, and she's a figure that shows up in several of the stories, um, in different aspects and in different different ways, um, depending on on the story.
0: Cool, cool. That's that's awesome. So when 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 is the the envious nothing? When is it is it going to be released? Uh, it's coming out, out soon. Out in right? June. Awesome, awesome. And that's this yep. is through hippocampus right?
1: Hippocampus Press, yes. Um, originally it was supposed to come out in August right at Necronomicon but Derek at Hippocampus wanted to get it out a little bit earlier to try to get some reviews, try to get a little bit of buzz going for it before Necronomicon. So um, I'm very excited that it's coming out a little bit early.
0: The nothingness, man. Is this like, uh, does it have roots and maybe is there like this when you said nothingness has like unrealized potential it's almost like this Nietzschean co- concept. Is that is that something that kind of relates in that way it can't
1: yeah in in a certain in some ways yeah for sure there's there's a few stories where i could definitely see that and i i wasn't like consciously thinking nietzsche but like that was i don't know my my whole 20s were spent or at least my early 20s were spent reading and rereading everything he wrote so that's um that's always something (laughs) that influences my my kind of worldview and how i write um, to the point, this is kind of an aside getting off the point of getting off the track a little bit, but one of the things i loved about Nietzsche is that if you look at something like, um, like Eche Homo, he has these things where, you know, like chapters called, like, you know, why I write such good books or whatnot. And, um, he pokes fun of himself a lot. And for this guy who's seen as like a nihilist and uh, a pessimist or whatnot, he, um, in like super serious with this Ubermensch kind of thing, um, he takes a lot of shots at himself and doesn't take himself too seriously. And that's something I've always found a lot of value in, um, and I've tried to emulate uh, both in you know my life and in my writing. And you have something like when I did Blackheart Boys Choir. That is a very dark book. It's a very serious book. I call it emotionally autobiographical, but I also used it as an opportunity to kind of poke fun at myself for certain things that were were kind of ridiculous about my youth um or even i have like a like a cobra from gi joe tattoo on my shoulder because you know when i was a teenager i was like enamored with the ideas of like fascism and like fascist aesthetic and uh so i have this gi joe cobra tattoo partially because i like cobra but also uh it's kind of a a a joke on myself for like my the cartoon fascism of my youth, so um, yeah, long, I, long I like answer. That, for yes.
0: That's really cool, that's <laughs> awesome. I, I, you know, that I, I think that's awesome too. I, I don't, I've never really met anyone that kind of feels like Nietzsche is almost satirical, like at some points, like especially like Thus Spoke Zarathustra. It's like a lot of people don't realize there's a lot of like, uh, the aphorisms are almost humorous, you know, yeah. Um, uh, he's kind of like goofing on himself and goofing on these other um, philosophers that people take so seriously. And, and like you said, it's like people think it's this this nihilism, but it's it's not. It's it's more. There is like a, a fluid goofiness throughout. Uh, I really I appreciate that. You know, um, that, that's cool that you kind of kind of see that. Not a lot of people like get that whole concept.
1: Well, thank you. Yeah, it's um, that's something that. Uh, I think the big things I took from him were, were the idea of, of transformation. And, you know, the, the subtitle of Eche Homo is becoming, uh, becoming who you are something like that, you know? Um, And I love the, the idea of transformation throughout his philosophy. And that's, that's something that I think is, you know, it's mirrored in mythology that, you know, predates all of this, um, you know, the idea of, like the Odinic idea of sacrificing yourself to yourself. Um, I just, that's something that, um, that I think is hugely important. Just finding ways to constantly grow and reinvent yourself and do that without losing track of who you were. Um, So that and kind of being able to laugh at myself for the two big things I took from Nietzsche.
0: So, so in relating to like your youth and stuff. um, So, so how, when did you start taking, like, writing seriously? When it was something that you realized that was like, oh, yeah, I, I definitely want to be an author?
1: It wasn't until my 20s, like, my mid-20s probably. I had, um, you know, I played in in metal and punk bands growing up. I started playing in bands when I was, like, 14 or something like that. And um, I thought I was either going to be, like, Uh, like a death slash black metal star or um, I don't know, like a revolutionary who took over the world or some such ridiculous idea, you know? Um, So when I was like 25, my life kind of fell apart. Um, It was just like everything, everything in my life just had, it kind of came out from under me and one of those things was a band I was in and uh, I was in this band with two very close friends and it um it just kind of went sideways and I ended up leaving that band and I decided that I didn't want to do collaborative stuff anymore at least not at that point in time I wanted to to make art that was it was just going to be me you know and it would succeed or fail on you know because of me and I also got to the point with bands that it felt like it felt like i was in a relationship with like three girls that i didn't want to be in a relationship with oh yeah i Um, feel (laughs) and um so i was just kind of done with that so i decided to try to start writing i I wrote a few short stories and i started doing comics because i'm a big comic guy um in comics was still collaborative but it was different because Um, it wasn't as intimately collaborative, I guess, you know, I was mainly working with guys in other countries and stuff through the internet. Um, so it wasn't this like deeply personal thing. Um, and at first I had more success in comics. I, I, I shopped a few short stories around that got rejected and rightfully so. Um, and I got some good feedback from editors more feedback than I deserved to have gotten at that point in time, uh, which was very helpful. And then I did comics for about 10 years to mild success. And I had, you know, my son was young at the time, and I had so much art from comics. When you make comics, when you submit them, you can't just submit a script for the most part. You have to submit like five to seven finished pages. And then, you know, most likely you're not going to get picked up from Image or Dark Horse or whoever you're sending it to. in a lot of these smaller companies, they're not going to pay enough to pay the price that you're paying the artists, you know, um, you're going to lose money on it. So I had all these, you know, five to seven page, like in, you know, pieces of comics that I had tried to shop around and never got anywhere. And it got to the point where I had thousands of dollars worth of art and these things on my computer. And I couldn't keep taking money out of my family's mouth. So okay. I decided to try to write a novel instead. And, um, I sold it like right away without even meaning to. So I kind of fell into a publishing deal and it seemed to do well and people recommended it for the stokers. And I said, well, I guess this is what I do now. Uh,
0: That's awesome, man. That's super cool. What, what, what novel was it? That was the devoured. Oh man. And that is such a fucking love that. Uh, Thank I love you. that, man. Yeah. You put it out on Kindle and I was, it was like last year and it was like a, it was, it's like a, like a Western sword and sorcery almost. Um, yeah, I was like super fun. I was like, yeah, I was like super into that stuff that time. Yeah, man, that's, that's awesome. Yeah. Cause I I love that. Yeah. That that novel rocks, man. Thank
1: you. Yeah. And you know, I've, when I, after I wrote it and I got some feedback from other authors and stuff, um, I came to realize that I I think I'm better at writing prose than I was at writing comics, definitely better at it than I was at writing music. So, um, And I've always had a love for words. Like I I loved writing lyrics when I was in bands. I used to write, you know, poetry and the starts of stories and long like journal diatribes about heartache and teenage bullshit like that. Um, And I just loved, I loved words and all of that. So it just when I started writing fiction, it it just clicked. And I think that a big part of that was learning how to tell stories through comics um i most of the comic stuff i've put out um i wouldn't say that most of it's good but it taught me how to tell a story and i think that was what i was missing when i first started writing short fiction before that is i knew how to make a scene i knew how to describe stuff and dialogue and i can make it i can make it flow and be pretty but i i didn't know how to tell a story i would just say oh here's some stuff that happens you know um so by the time i had gotten through you know 10 years of writing comics or so i i knew how to to make a plot and uh it, it served me well it, it, it really helped me become a good writer i think
0: so so you know like we, we we're talking about you know obviously you're you're writing the introduction for um the our next Black Metal anthology into the yes. crypts of Wraith, which is super awesome because, you know, you have a background in Black Metal. How yep. has how how all of that affected your stories and maybe your, like, your overall theme to your, um, um, your fiction?
1: Oh, man, it, it affects everything. <laughs> you know, so I got into Black Metal probably... I, don't I think I said in that introduction I wrote for you guys. I think I say I found the date of the magazine, but it was like 1996 or something. I think, and um, somebody brought this issue of Spin magazine and had
0: this article called Satan's Cheerleaders, and uh, they said, "Oh, I think you might be into this." And I went. That's like a, like a hot time too for black. Yeah, men. like a lot of really good stuff comes out of that mid 90s shit. Um, exactly. Honestly, so, it's my, that's my favorite kind of era mine
1: too but like i think for me it's partially because that's you know i was like 16 at the time you know so um everybody a lot of people get stuck on the music that they were into when they were teenagers and i I'm, I'm definitely guilty of that but uh you know i went searching and luckily mm-hmm. i live i live around boston so there are some cool record stores um which not everybody had so i was able to track down you know, the first thing i tracked down was emperor Enslave slave the emperor and slave split horgan's land and it just fucking blew me away like everything changed so um <laughs> and then you know i found like some Burzum cds and i found like right the mysterious dom Sethanus by mayhem um and i just kept going down the rabbit hole and for years man that like this was my life like black metal was my life um and it was just to me it felt like the most truly rebellious thing out there that i had ever experienced um and there was this atavistic aspect of it like this yearning for something that had passed that i had always kind of felt i always felt like i i didn't belong in the time that i lived in um which i think is true of a lot of young people you know you um, well I, I always
0: think of the song by Burzum, what once was it's like yeah that, that always clicks with me that kind of concept and and i feel that dude i feel that yeah, absolutely, and that was it. That was such a
1: strong thing for me. Like, I felt like this is music that gets it. It wasn't like, um you know, I, I like a lot of punk, but I was never like an like an activist kind of person like that. I, you know, I never was moved by like the Dead Kennedys or anything like that. It, it was just kind of, you know, I wasn't interested. And this, the this kind of you know, like you said, this days of your failing, um, this atavistic kind of part of it was really appealing to me and it it just drew me in and it became my life, like literally for, for years and years. And eventually I had kind of, um, I don't know. I had a a falling out with not even a falling out because we never were in, but, um, I had kind of a beef with a a fairly big black metal personality in the U S and I was changing. Like I was, I was maturing a little bit. So I started getting away from that culture and almost kind of rebelling against my own rebellion in a way. And, you know, I cut my hair, I started wearing like turtlenecks and like, (laughs) like, like old Soviet, like, you know, military jackets that I thought looked like dress jackets or something. You know, I don't, I have no clue what I was doing. I was just, you know, (laughs) I was trying to be, I don't know this. I was trying to get this like, faux aristocratic thing going that was supposed to be like a rebellion against black metal but it really wasn't anyways it, you know I was 20 years old or something you know 22 years old or something so I was stupid um, but anyway it um as much as I tried to like distance myself from that for a while I was never really able to and it it always creeped into my fiction um in one way or another and then in my like I don't know, my mid 30s or so. I just kind of really gravitated back toward that and felt at home again when I went back to um to black metal without the anger and the baggage that um that I had had in my mid 20s. And Blackheart Boys Choir is is completely inspired by my my experience. I was just while, about while to say it. that
0: Lucian sounds like it all makes sense now about lucian and how he kind of he's this elite music very by the books character and then falls into with these you know black metal guys and he's kind of torn between that as it's, it's it all makes sense now <laughs> yeah <laughs> lucy it is a very
1: very autobiographical character in a lot of ways um which is you know not a great thing to admit <laughs> <whatever>. <laughs> uh, But, I mean, that's who I was when I was a teenager, pretty much. And, um, you know, minus the murder part. (laughs) uh, (laughs) um, Or at least that was my perception of myself. Let me put it that way. I was probably a lot goofier than that in reality. But that's how I saw myself. And, um, but yeah, Blackheart Boys Choir was completely inspired by my experience with black metal. And part of the reason I didn't make Lucien a black metal guy was because I felt that if you – told a story with an existing subculture that it would get irrelevant quickly. And Anthony Burgess, when he wrote A Clockwork Orange, he came up with all that, you know, all the like fake slang there, like, you know, the knifey Malaco and, oh, yeah, and yeah. all that. He came up with that because he didn't want to use real world slang that would be dated in 10 years. So, you know, if he hadn't thought of that, you might go read A Clockwork Orange and Alex would be like, oh, let's go out and have some groovy violin. <laughs> you know? um, it'd sound corny and nobody would be able to, it wouldn't resonate with people. So that was in my mind when I wrote Blackheart Boys Choir. I didn't want to write a black metal thing. And then in 10 years, nobody would be able to relate to it. Because um, metal's already kind of like an old man music. Like You don't really see young people getting into black metal or death metal and stuff so much. Um, so I wanted it to also, I wanted it to have more a broader appeal for maybe people who felt like outcasts but weren't into like, you know, a musical subculture or something like that. Um, And, you know, I've, I've talked to people who felt like outcasts for various reasons, who've read the book, whether it was because, you know, they were like a Hispanic kid in an all white school or whether they were like that metal kid or whether they were just like a, you know, like a hardcore nerd and they can all relate to that. So I'm glad that I I chose to make it something a little bit, um, you know, like there's not really there's no such thing as like a classical music, like underground subculture, like what I, I created there. So by creating something fake, it became kind of more universal for people. And I think that worked well.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I, I mean it is, it's kind of this it's it exists out of time, the way I think of it. Uh it's yeah, timeless. Um and and I could praise that that novel. Like I literally tell everybody, I'm like, dude, this is like one of my favorite books i've read it's so good um but yeah uh, man i really do i i dig that book so much it's definitely on a top top list for me in like the last few years of like i mean i read it in like a couple days just devoured (laughs) it um so uh but yeah yeah that's awesome that there's this that you kind of took the the rebellious aspect of black metal and and used it almost against itself but also utilize it in a way where you could tell something that was, you know, close to yourself and personal. That's, that's, that's really awesome.
1: Aside from Blackheart boys choir, the Emmy is nothing. Probably not all of the stories, but some of the stories in there are like more influenced by black metal than probably anything I've written except for Blackheart boys choir. And um, like, there's a, there's a novella in there called beneath the emerald sky, which has real strong folk horror vibes. It's kind of like folk slash cosmic horror, but it it's, very inspired by, um, you know, black metal aesthetic as well as, um, you know, there's some Norse mythology kind of stuff in there. Once again, Angra Boda appears in several of these stories and my interest in a lot of that stems from my interest in black metal. And even, um, you know, my kind of my obsession with, with Angra Boda really started, between it was kind of a twin thing between um one of neil gaiman's versions of norse myths from his norse mythology story and there's this artist i think her name is darby lager she goes by the instagram handle of old hag and she had a couple like angrabota pieces that i really liked so those and she's married to the dude from the band Arcanum. um so she's like this black metal person too so that all fueled a, a bunch of stuff in those stories but particularly uh beneath the emerald sky and um i would say to a lesser extent the rye mother um there's just a couple folk ones in there and they, they're all kind of black metal inspired and interestingly the cover art was done by rebecca clegg who's an old friend of mine and she's done album covers for not and krieg and zaster and chrome waves and those oh, cool. metal cool Love, so like yeah and black
0: metal stuff yeah yeah exactly
1: awesome. so um so she did the uh, yeah the album cover. she did the book cover it was her first book cover and um it was interesting because she was beta reading these stories for me just you know just because and then she uh she was like oh you know if you ever want me to do a book cover and i was like yeah that'd be great but i'd have to you know i don't get final say i have to talk to hippocampus so before I even talked to Hippocampus, she started painting this thing. <laughs> and um, luckily they loved it. So um, it's a very cool cover. And uh, I like that it has, it fits the book, but there's also the the black metal tie there as well as within the story. So I thought that was kind of cool.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. Um, and, and that, that cover rocks, man, that's such a good cover. Uh, Thank you. Like right when I saw it, I was like, dude, I can't wait for this to come out. Um, and it's really cool because I can't think of anyone else like any other publishing like press to be fitted with besides Hippocampus because you're one of the modern weird fiction writers. And I always like try to tell me there's a difference. Weird yep. fiction is different, you know, than just straight up horror. Like, uh, so, so what, what do you think the difference is between being like, like you tell, you say you're, you're unapologetically weird. What, what does, what does that mean?
1: Um, So I think that, the for me the, there's a couple things first of all there's just a feeling that you get when you read f- weird fiction it's almost like that old saying you know like i can't describe punk rock but you know you know what when you hear it kind of thing um but more than that i think that weird embraces the fantastic a little bit more fully in in one like a you know like my tagline unapologetically um whereas you might have something like um you know, you might have a a zombie novel or something like even Resident Evil. Take Resident Evil, for instance, like the video game. And you have, um, you know, they try to give these like real scientific uh, reasons for the zombie outbreak or whatnot, or even like 28 Days Later, something like that. Um, And they try to ground things a little bit more in reality. And I think that weird fiction embraces the surrealness more so. Um, It's about the fantasy elements and you can you can give scientific reasons for to a certain extent you could say this is scientific but it still has to be unexplainable to a certain degree in my opinion to really have that weird fiction feeling you know like lovecraftian gods aren't gods they are these aliens beyond our understanding but still like for all intents and purposes to us they're gods um and if you take something like Caitlin Kernan, which is totally you know different than Lovecraft, but like kind of you know stems from Lovecraft, you have these incredibly surreal stories like the Drowning Girl or the Red Tree, where you don't really know what's going on. It's ambiguous. There's unreliable narrators, and there's just this buildup of the insane and fantastical. And for me, that's kind of what differentiates weird fiction from straight up horror. It's not about the body count or the gore or um, or, you know, your mortality. It's, it's more about the, the feeling, the fantastical and a sense of existential dread. Cause I, I don't think that even if you pull Lovecraftian elements, element, you pull tentacle monsters and, you know, scary fog or whatever, um, unless there's some sort of almost philosophical or psychological existential, elements in the background then it doesn't feel
0: like weird fiction to me but the, that's just me and especially like a lot of stuff now and and I love I love a lot most of the stuff I read now is like independent authors and I fucking love it I'm, it's like very cool that writing now as as much as everyone wants to be a writer now there is this like punk rock attitude that reminds me of when I was in like a band in like high school and Everyone's a writer. Everyone's like slinging their own cool ideas. But I I see this trending element of body horror um, right now. And and I think it's cool to go back to like, it's cool. It's like a breath of of fresh air when there's writers that are doing that existential element. This this unspoken dread, unexplainable dread. I I think that's important to not reveal the monsters, you know, Um, reveal what it actually is. Uh, That's very important to me. And that makes it even scarier.
1: I think so too. And, you know, that was one of the things that was kind of cool about doing this book. Um, You know, uh, some of it is, some of the stories are are reprints and they weren't originally intended with this idea of nothing, but um, looking back at them, there were elements that, that I said, yeah, this can fit. Um, Like there's a reprint called the happiest place on earth, which is about this kid in a, you know, basically Disneyland, and, um, this black fog keeps encroaching in on him every day. And like, there's something going on out in the world that you don't quite know. Um, and he's just this single like little boy stuck in like this amusement park by himself as while they're like shadow monsters in this black fogs encroaching in. Um, and I hadn't intended it when I was writing it to be like the nothing quote unquote, but you know, it's, it definitely fit enough that I could use it and Looking at this concept of the nothing in these different lenses that allowed me to to do what you were saying to to not reveal the monsters and have this kind of this mysterious force in the background, which isn't entirely negative all the time, you know, um, like it also creates things. So that was a lot of fun. And when I was doing it, though, I said, oh, man am i going to be able to like fill a book with with stories about nothing <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> especially after i sent it to hippocampus because they were like oh this is awesome but write more and i was like oh, okay um yeah <laughs> so they're like we need more words so i had to and that's why i wrote that beneath the emerald sky novella because I, I needed more words and i think that turned out to be, probably be the strongest piece in there so i'm glad that that st joshi pushed me on that um so yeah, I, th- I think that it gave me a, a really good opportunity to to look at these, you know, these forces and not fully explain them. Even the the, the figure of Angor Bota, which appears in several no, I shouldn't say appears, but is appears or is referenced in several of the stories. In um, you know, to some she's this almost like. Savior type mother crone figure into others. She's literally the mother of all monsters, you know, the, like the source of all suffering. Um, and you never get to really experience Angra face to face. You know, it's just kind of different perceptions or aspects of her. So it's like an
0: archetype, uh, like a Yamian yeah. archetype almost.
1: Exactly. Yeah. And um, I really enjoyed being able to explore that concept of Angra without making her like a full-blown character and you know in like you know kind of a a randall flag bad guy type of thing i wanted to avoid that i wanted to keep her
0: mysterious as well as the titular nothing it sounds like I, i mean it sounds like just something that's totally up my alley so so what are some influences What what's some stuff that you really that you read maybe growing up that really like influenced you that had a strong resonance with you
1: sure um there's so i i tend to write in kind of two different styles like i I have like my real weird fiction kind of thing where it's you know like the kind of bleak cosmic horror like ambiguous kind of stuff and then i have my real over the top kind of black humor stuff like the bad world books or those who go forth into the empty place of gods um so i have i have kind of different sets of authors who influenced me in different ways. Um, I will say for like kind of the over at the top stuff like bad world, it's very crime influenced too. like Dwayne Swarzynski was a huge influence on, on how I write that sort of stuff. And probably how I write everything because his action scenes really stood out to me Um, when I was, when I was doing comics and stuff, when I was learning to write um, in the way he just didn't care. He just went balls to the wall and he never, he never, uh, you know, he doesn't let up and he doesn't compromise. It's just over the top, like pulp exploitation, violence, um, and yeah, that that was a huge influence on how I write, I think. Um, and then you have guys like um, like like Douglas Adams, you know, or um, or Neil Gaiman, the, you know, Ray Bradbury, the real classic guys like that um, and from horror, Clive Barker, I'm definitely more influenced by say like Clive Barker than Stephen King. I, I like Stephen King like half the time, which is, you know, I think pretty good considering he's written like 400
0: books. You know? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> the, yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> I feel the same way. I feel like eighties, like seventies, late seventies and eighties King, I'm totally cool with it. and then everything else. I'm like, uh, it's it's
1: all right, you know. Yeah, you know, it's hit or miss for me. You know, like um, I I I did like Doctor Sleep, but once again, Doctor Sleep, I, I think it's a new book. But Doctor Sleep's kind of an old book at this point. Right, right, <laughs> um, right. Yeah. So, um, but I would say I don't consider King a huge influence on my work. Um, like a lot of people, um, cite him as an influence. I'm more of a Barker guy. And more of a Lovecraft. Um, a lot of the older writers, really, I think, influenced how I write. Lovecraft, chief among them, just because I, I don't get out of it necessarily the same thing that a lot of other writers get. It's not about the the world building necessarily, or about the the visuals of his mythos. It's about the that kind of unnamed dread that we we talked about before that that thing you don't see that really and i think it's from a
0: personal experience with lovecraft too it's like it's like every character you're usually from a first person perspective and there's this personal dread that the that the the main character experiences like i that that's what really like resonates with me
1: yeah absolutely and you know you can kind of be with them as they're going mad and um it doesn't have to be that they're facing down like a werewolf or something like that, or like a guy with a knife. You know, it can be this this much subtler, strange thing, like in the music of Eric Zahn or something like that. Um, so, yeah, Lovecraft is probably chief among the influences, which I know is cliche to say, but it's true. Um, and then, you know, Arthur Mackin and um, with the King in Yellow stuff by, by
0: um, Chambers is is a huge influence on me. Oh yeah, the, that collection changed my life when I first yeah. read it. I've like I've never read anything like this, you know. It's pretty wild. It's pretty insane. Um
1: and then there's a lot of comic guys too, man. Like Sam Keith is a huge influence for me and um like the Max was a really important comic to me. The There's this whole concept of, you know, bouncing, just not even bouncing, like kind of just shifting between realities and having different aspects of who you are exist in, you know, in kind of shift between these, these worlds and which are also maybe just like parts of, you know, one person's mind it was so trippy and in out there and psychological that it, it stuck with me very strongly and it's something i go back i usually read through the whole max like once a year or so oh dude the um, max
0: is like so surreal and even like i know like i remember watching the cartoon adaptation on mtv back yeah in the day, and like, that's where i first found man, it <laughs> man i remember and i was i was younger you know i was like probably like four or five but that those those images and those shows probably influenced me subconsciously whether i want to admit it or not to to what i'm interested in today um oh yeah man it was those images and things that's something i've never seen before as a kid you know
1: it was so strong in sam keith's art style too is so unique and so surreal um did it just, it drew, it just draws me in. And I think that that's a good example. When you're talking about weird fiction. I don't think weird fiction has to be horror. I think that you can have weird fiction that isn't horror at all. Um, and while the max has some scary elements, like, you know, like Mr. Gone is like this, you know, he's like a serial rapist and he's like this dark sorcerer and stuff, but I wouldn't classify the max as a horror piece by any means. Um, but I would call it weird fiction a hundred percent. Um and it just, it hits the right nerves for that. It's just so surreal. And it hits on all these psychological and philosophical themes. And, um, and it's got the strong, fantastical imagery. Um, and Well, that's even a, like
0: Clark Ashton Smith, you know. That's yes, Clark Ashton Smith, absolutely. For fantastical, surreal elements, descriptions, um, but like not necessarily, I don't know if I can classify some of those things as actual horror you know what i mean oh absolutely
1: or you take like lord dunsany man like lord dunsany is definitely not horror and it's
0: right yeah
1: yeah in aside from being some of the most beautiful prose in the english language it um it's just so out there and like surreal and fantastical like the the king of Elfman's daughter is one of my favorite books ever um and it's just the idea of just something like You know going into the ground to dig up lightning bolts and stuff like that you know um things like that really really stuck with me as far as the fantasist part of me um and then also like as far as movies and stuff like exploitation films in in horror films were a huge influence um like i love 70s violent exploitation films um i love nightmare on elm street i love you know evil dead um so that sort of stuff, too, influenced me strongly. Um, but, man, if I had to name one one big thing aside from Lovecraft, that would be the Max for sure.
0: That's very cool because, like, I wouldn't even... I, I would have never thought anyone to say, you know, the Max is, like, my main <laughs> inspiration for writing, but that's fucking awesome. Yeah, that's... Mm-hmm. Yeah, the Max rules. Um, all those i have a story All those, like, 90s in, comics that are so awesome
1: oh yeah yeah i mean I, I i I, you know i loved you know the sandman and uh you know um a lesser known one or lesser read one was hellstorm prince of lies which was kind of like marvel's answer to sandman um that got really good towards the end like warren ellis did a run at the end um that was another comic that was huge for me um i'd love to write a a Hellstorm series from Marvel. Um, And I I like superhero comics, too. I agree. You know, I was a huge X-Men fan, a huge Spider-Man fan.
0: Um, Oh, yeah, I was a huge Spider-Man fan. Like, I was obsessed as a kid.
1: And I I think that I don't draw as much inspiration from comics in my own writing because I see them as serving a different purpose. Um, Comic characters, I see more as archetypal or almost mythological in the f- way that they aren't meant to change and have the same sort of character growth as a character and say a novel or you know even like a, a book series or a movie or something like that um they're meant to be an ideal or you know like wolverine's meant to be this fierce troubled damaged character and spider-man's meant to be this you know this kind of like selfless hero who's like always the underdog and he always, you know, he always gets the short end of the stick and Captain America always does the right thing and he, you know, never backs down. And, um, you don't really have the room for those type of characters to grow and change as much. Um, although sometimes they do, but, um, I think Grant Morrison in, I think the book was called super gods that he wrote and he talked about why he loved superman and it was because in the threat of like at the atomic bomb superman represented something that was stronger than war and stronger than nukes you know um so like i love that stuff but it doesn't it doesn't really impact how i write because i i don't write about you know i'm not writing these um these purely archetypal characters at least not for main characters
0: Right, right, yeah. Like I feel like the archetypes can be used more; their forms can be used more as kind of malevolent, yeah, <laughs> adversaries rather than being your main character. Because you know, as people, we're not archetypes; we are exactly, individual. yes, yeah, um, yeah. That's interesting.
1: And I will say, on as far as the Max thing, there's a there's a story in the Envious Nothing called Elvis and Isolde, and that was absolutely. Like, super inspired by the Max. Um, so, and, um, it's a, I think on the back cover, they refer to it as a story about the transmigration of souls, um, which I hadn't thought of it that way, but I guess it is. <laughs> and it's about these kind of three figures in three different realities, like completely different realities. Um, and it was a hundred percent inspired by like the outback and the city and everything in the Mac. So
0: it's going to be awesome. And what what from what you're telling me, it sounds sounds incredible. Um. So so what is your what story out of all of them would you pick to say that is your favorite?
1: Um. It's hard to say. Like, yeah, I don't know which one's my favorite. I will say the most personal one to me is called Secrets of the Forbidden Kata. And um, it's interesting because two of my friends, that actually my two main beta readers, liked that story the best. And I think ST Joshi liked it the least out of them. Um, but it's about this guy who has like a muscular degenerative disease and he's got money and he, um, you know, he didn't start getting into physical health until he was, you know, until he was already established financially. Um, So he was kind of a nerd and, you know, did all the right things and did a startup, you know, and became financially secure and then started, you know, getting into fitness and got like really into it and into martial arts. And then he got this disease and all of a sudden, you know, he's losing his strength. He can't do the things he used to. And he has all this money and all this stuff, but like all he wants is his body back. Um, And, you know, he'll kind of do anything to get his body back. Um is the the main driving idea behind the story. And I wrote it after I when I was 40, I um I, all through my 30s, I would wake up in the middle of the night because I was as overweight and I had like fatty liver issues and all this stuff. And I drink like two liters of Mountain Dew a day and <laughs> I was eating like shit. And I'd wake up at like three in the morning a couple times a week, and I'd be like, "Man, you're gonna die. You need you need to change something because you're gonna die." <laughs> and then I'd get up the next morning, and then I wouldn't change anything, you know. And I'd say, "Oh, tomorrow I'll start working out again." You know, tomorrow I'll eat better. Um, and when I hit forty, that was kind of my midlife crisis. I was like, "Today's the day. Like, you need to do this." So you know, I changed my diet. I started counting calories. I started working out. And I got to a point by the time I was like. You know 41 uh i was in the best shape of my life and i was stronger than i had ever been and i felt more energetic than i had since i was in my 20s um and i looked better than i had in a you know over a decade and then i ruptured my bicep not even working out i was at, i was at my job and i was lifting something heavy and i fucking ruptured my bicep and i was I couldn't do anything for like six months and i didn't know if i was going to be able to lift weights again i didn't know like how much use i was going to have in my arm again and i just fell into like the deepest depression i had been in 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 a very long time maybe the deepest depression i had been in like i'd say in all my adult life um it was probably you know one of the one of the lowest if not the lowest points and um i just you know i was you know just like what what do you why why you even have this thing? I should just fucking cut the arm off. Like you know, like I should just get a prosthetic. You know, I and like I won't say that like I ever seriously considered like harming myself or whatever, but like I never even like had the the shadow of like a suicidal thought before that. Um and I was just so low because of this because I had finally started doing what was right. I had started taking care of myself, and then this happened so. Secrets of the Forbidden Kata was kind of like my way to deal with that and to, to work through all those issues. Um, And obviously, you know, I'm not suffering from like some grand muscular degenerative disease. I'm not nearly in the same boat as the character, but that's kind of where my emotional state was. Um, So for me, that's the, that's the most personal story. The one that, that I feel the most connection to.
0: Very cool. Very cool. That's, um. Uh i love that it relates to something like uh i love the fact that you're saying you were starting to do the right thing and it's like this was this is what happens when you do the right thing almost yeah. um I-, I love that aspect that you can't you can't predict shit there is no you know it literally is like rolling dice things just happen yep. um and you have to roll with it so I-, I really respect that it's really cool now now this this we don't have to keep in here if you don't want to um but like so, you know, I, I see. I've seen you, you know, like talk about like there was that whole silver shamrock. A couple weeks <laughs> I knew ago. you were gonna bring this up. <laughs> I just want to talk to you as like a bro, like as a friend, yeah. like because I feel you the same way. It. I don't care. Um, <laughs> but like, uh, yeah, man. Like so, like how do you feel about all this? Like obviously, people are like, you can't get canceled. There's no such thing as being canceled. Yes, obviously, you can keep putting out your work, but um there are repercussions you know to uh i i don't know to your reputation um depending on what the mood is for what everyone doesn't like this week do 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 you feel that's kind of accurate I, th-
1: I think that it's it's a complicated issue and it's more complicated than anybody wants to talk about on either side i think um you have you know obviously you have a lot of people who say oh you can't be canceled and some of them are you know i think i saw um what's his name like uh, he's i think he's got the same last name as me it was a john Lawson, the guy from raw dog screaming press um he posted something on twitter about this i think it was actually probably in response to people retweeting the shit out of my tweet
0: um i saw a few people that day yeah yeah i pissed some people
1: <laughs> um and that's fine i do that sometimes um but um and for the record if anybody's listening i was just saying that um you know I made a tweet saying that several author friends of mine came to me and said they were considering not publishing work anymore because of the environments of, uh, you know, the cancel culture environment and that they felt that they couldn't talk about tough issues without risking their career or their reputation. Um, And whether or not that's justified, that is how these people felt. Um, And I was saying that having... Did it's whatever the reasoning behind it, the environment that we have right now in the writing community is not conducive to art or free expression. Um, and people lost their shit for me saying that. Um, not everybody, but some people. And I, I did say that I think that a lot of the people who do this sort of thing, they like name and shame kind of stuff. I think that's, I don't say a lot of them. I think that some of them are doing this from a place of good faith. They really think that, something is dangerous or something is harmful to the community or the readers or whatnot. And they think that, you know, they're morally obligated to, to say something and, you know, express express themselves. And I don't, you know, I, I won't begrudge anyone, you know, doing what they think is is right and moral or whatnot, but I think that more people do it for attention um, and they do it so that they can, you know, they can get a pat on the back and a bunch of likes. And, um, that is when it becomes a culture that is anathema to art, when it just becomes this kind of cool, let's pile on everybody to get likes and, you know, get my dopamine hit kind of thing. Right. Um, I
0: feel like it's this, there is a whole, I, I don't know why, man. I don't know why. And I don't know where it happened. Um, maybe it is this social media, just spiraling out of control but there is this like self-righteousness that we feel like um we have to prove that we're doing the quote-unquote moral right thing and then to hold everybody accountable like it's like like a guillotine you know what i mean we have to put everybody on the guillotine to hold them accountable but like in the end of the day for what you know
1: yeah and I will say, you know, there are people that um, that came out and said, you know, like you can't be canceled. You know, um, like you said, uh, the dude from Raw Dog Screaming Press there talked about things that people had done to him in his career and that he kept going through um, because of content or misrepresented content and things like that. Um, and I think like um, what is his name? Essay. Uh, I saw that comment. Yeah. yeah. Um, I saw that one. <laughs> you know, in um, and like. I think I saw something from Gabino Iglesias about this, you know, and I will say that I agree that you can't be canceled unless you let people cancel you. Like you can have your career damaged. You could have your reputation damaged, but like no one can stop you from chugging along. And honestly, most things people are going to forget because the internet has a short memory. Um, So unless you did something really egregious, you know, and you just just keep doing what you're doing, and like tell people to fuck off and keep going. It, unless you think that you did something wrong. If you think you did something wrong, you feel really feel that you fucked up, then you should apologize. But if you don't, if you if you
0: sincerely think you did nothing wrong, you know, then flip everybody off and keep writing. Um, I, I I get to the point where I think, how can you really, unless you're like totally vocally saying some off-kilter shit or shaming anyone or degrading anyone for things they can't control. How can writing be perceived as like immoral because it's art? You know what I mean? Art does not have boundaries. And you know, as far as the like the Gino Nail
1: thing, the whole silver shamrock thing. I haven't read the Gino Nail book. I know that the the back cover copy was bad, but Gino Neal's not an unknown quantity. This dude's been writing for a long time. He's never had any issues before and people weren't like, Hey, let's give this the benefit of the doubt. Um, And Gene handled it badly too. I think he like sicked his fans on people and stuff, which wasn't cool. He shouldn't <laughs> have done that. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So like, I think the whole thing was, was handled badly, but you have these people going after this veteran author for back copy that he probably didn't write in right. comparing the book to the fucking Turner diaries. And like the Turner diaries was literally intended as a weapon. It's, it's meant to to ins- to sow hatred in civil unrest and serve as a manual for domestic terrorism. Like it was written by the leader of like the like biggest neo-Nazi organization of the time to do this thing. In um, this is just a novel that maybe you know maybe he sh- shouldn't have written it. Maybe it's you know. Maybe it was like stupid or insensitive or whatnot. Like I said, I haven't read it, but to compare this to the Turner Diaries—that's um, absurd. It's absurd, <laughs> and it comes from—it doesn't come from a place of good faith, in my opinion. It seems like you're not—you're not trying well, to like make it a valid says a lot
0: That no one even read the book, too.
1: Yeah, exactly. So, um, and like I said, you, you know, I understand saying. I'm not going to support silver shamrock anymore because they're putting out this book. That's completely fine. I understand people saying I'm not going to support Gino nail anymore, but for people to say this guy's a Nazi and I'm going to, you know, this is the Turner diaries and all this stuff. Like that's, that's absurd. And it's, and that's the kind of stuff that creates this, this culture where people feel uncomfortable putting themselves out there. And then you have, I'm not going to name names, but uh, there was a particular person who was involved in this. And they went on about, oh, you, you know, there's no such thing as cancel culture. You can't cancel people. And then I've seen the same person talk about how certain writers should be canceled. Um, you know, particularly um, there was a comment about uh, David Wong, like, even though he had kind of retired that pseudonym, you know, um, that he should be canceled. So you can't out of one side of your mouth say this thing doesn't exist and then try to cancel people out of the other side of your mouth. It just shows that you're not you're not coming at this from a place of good faith. You're not genuinely concerned about the art or even the social issues. Like if, to me if you're if you're saying one thing in this tweet and saying it, a, a different thing on this, you're either just trying to shut down people who uh, you think are problematic and you're just a politico. You know, you just, you, there can only be your message or you're out for attention or perhaps, you know, I've seen a couple other people say that a lot of this stuff is coming from people involved in other small presses. So, you know, there's, there's also that aspect. I find it suspect when, when somebody who runs a small press tries to ruin another small press
0: how does this okay so things i feel like culture changes very very rapidly these days with uh, acceptability and uh, what is what is hot now um, how does how does this kind of volatile co- community and writing community how do, how does it affect your writing or does it even
1: it doesn't cuz you know like well, yeah going back to like what like you know essay and like you know uh gabino and and john lawson there what they all said you know like i think that they were coming at it from a point of honesty they're saying you can't be canceled if if you know if you stand behind your art and i do agree with that and to me like it's never been a concern because I come from a DIY background. I'm like, I'll print this shit up on my laser printer, staple it and like (laughs) hand it on the subway. You know, like, I don't give a shit. Like, like nothing's going to stop me from doing this. So if, you know, if I can't, if I get kicked off of Twitter, you know, that's fine. If I get kicked off of Amazon, like, you know, these things are inconveniences, but nothing's going to stop me from doing this. So it doesn't really concern me. You know, When I write something, um, when I'm actually doing the writing, I have a hard and fast rule that the art always comes first, no matter what. Like, I don't consider whether it's marketable, whether it's cancelable, whether it's going to harm a relationship with a person I have in real life. I write it down as the way the story demands. And then I'll look at it afterwards. And if there's something, particularly if there's something where I think it might be too close to reality and harm someone in my real life or you know like cross a line with someone in my real life then maybe i'll change it or won't put it out but as far as like marketability or pissing somebody off um as long as i feel that i went about it honestly and from a place of good faith then i'm not going to change it and i i do think that when you're writing about a sensitive topic or if you're writing outside of your experience your culture your sexuality whatever the case may be you do need to do your due diligence you need to to try to understand this as much as possible because uh, it's the same reason though is you would you would research anything you know like i'm not gonna put out a book about Classical music, like Art Boys Choir. If I don't know shit about classical music, I'm not going to make a main character who sees the world purely <laughs> right. in musical terms. Um, if you take something like, um, like Heartshaped Box by by Joe Hill, which is uh, like a really good book, but there's so many cringe moments in that book because Joe Hill, yeah.
0: he just doesn't get it. Like he, you could tell he, has, he hasn't it. been there, man. He hasn't yeah. been there in that culture. Yes, yeah, exactly, one hundred percent.
1: And it's very clear. So. Um, the same thing goes for, for when you're writing outside of your, your experience. I think you have to do the research and if you fail, that's fine. I think that's fine too. And that's the other thing where I think people get hung up on. Sometimes people will come at something from a place of good faith. They'll do their research. They'll, they'll try to be doing this with respect and they're going to fail because none of us are perfect artists. You know, we like fuck up from time to time. And I think that that's okay. And sometimes you know, it it can even like work out artistically, but there's there's no forgiveness for that right now, Um, and I think that that's unfortunate too. And that goes back to the Gene O'Neill thing. I Gene's been doing this for a long time, and I don't know him, but I know people who do know him, and they all speak highly of him. And I don't think that this guy came at this from like a place of malevolence or a place of disrespect or anything like that. And maybe he fucked up, but you know. That's that's just what it is, man. People fuck up. And if you look at Stephen King, man, there's so much cringy fucking, Uh, like, (laughs) like so much cringy, racist,
0: sexist, like, shit in Stephen King books. But nobody gives a shit because it's Stephen King. Um, Dude, my friends, I have a couple of friends that are, like, avid King readers, but they literally have a drinking game where when they read King's books, they, like, take a drink every time he says something racist, sexist, or homophobic. Yeah, and, uh, you know what I mean. That that exists, but he would never be held accountable for that because it's Stephen King. You know what I mean. Exactly. There are Dude. there are hierarchies of uh, you know acceptance in in culture and celebrity, whatever. Uh,
1: Absolutely, you know. And you know, like going back to like something, you you take something like I don't know. Take I don't know any small author who like. Even if it's been, you know, if you took, I don't want to name somebody real because I don't want to like insinuate that somebody said these things, but say, let's say Sutter Cain, right? You know, there Sutter you Cain from the Mouth of Madness. <laughs> say like Sutter Cain used a homophobic slur 10 years ago um, and it came out, you know, and like, you know, he's he's a small press author um, and you find out that he did this, you know, he had this insensitive moment in this book back in the day. People will go after him, but you take something like, uh, like Bill and Ted, which, you know, they just put out like, you know, not just, but you know, they have Bill and Ted face the music and it's got this, you know, it was this huge movie and everything. You go back to the original Bill and Ted and like, you know, there's like, they're calling each other homo and stuff like that, you know, after they hug and, um, and there's, and I'm not saying that like we should go back there and cancel Bill and Ted because of this, but there is a, I think a double standard of, the power dynamic like if you're not up in a certain tier you are not forgiven for
0: for uh for past mistakes i I mean i i have times when i'm writing and i'm writing a part that is ripped straight from reality of things that i've heard people in my town say or characters that i know that are you know are influencing my stories they say awful shit, but yeah that's the point of writing is to create this suspension of disbelief. You know what I mean? Yeah.
1: No, you have to, you have to be, you have to capture that. And I think that glazing over that too, it not only is it insincere, you know, it makes the art, the art suffers for it, but um, it, it doesn't, it doesn't do anything like that art's supposed to do. Like it doesn't, it doesn't address problems. It doesn't, address reality. Um, you know, like I'm largely a fantasist, but like when you're using fantasy, you're you're trying to say something about reality through that fantasy, you know, like the truth with a lie kind of thing that people say about fiction. And you can't just ignore how people are or how people were. There was um, you know, there was a review at Devil's Night, and it was pretty complimentary, but the, the reviewer said so they couldn't give it more than three stars because of the racism in the book. And, you know, they understand, that it, they understand it was 80, the 80s in Detroit, um, but, you know, it's not the 80s anymore kind of thing. Um, and that's fine. Like, you know, like I'm not going to, like the reviewer can, you know, they, they feel how they feel and uh, I'm not going to fight the validity of their feelings or whatnot. But to me, I'm not going to write a book that takes place in the inner city in the 1980s and pretend that racism didn't exist
0: exactly yes yeah well okay here's a good example i i wrote a story and the the main antagonist is like a you know like a underground skinhead neo-nazi whatever like you know um uses plenty of racial slurs so i i I let my wife read it go over over through and she's like i don't know you use too much you know you use too many slurs you you like go overboard um you know and and she's she's black so she's totally giving me how it is she knows how it is and then i'm like you know what maybe you're right maybe i should tone it back and then i did tone it back i toned it back and it made it more realistic because it's more subtle and, and it it makes more sense for the character not to be so over the top because it looks like i'm trying too hard to make the point yes
1: and i think that that's another danger um even when you're coming at it from a place, maybe especially when you're coming out of a place where you're trying to be like, "This is a bad guy." Look, look, you can tell he's a bad guy because he keeps saying these things, these bad guy things. Um, and I think that that's a dang, that's something I've seen in fiction too. Where um, there's something in comics that uh, that Will Eisner used to talk about, which was visual shorthand, where you know you'd have a guy in like a trench coat with a hat pulled down over his face. And you know, that's a, you know, he's a villain, you know, you know, he's a a criminal or whatever. Um, Or you'd see, you know, some like guy with a big square jaw and like the sun's behind him. And, you know, he's a good guy kind of thing. Um, And I think that we run into a sort of like narrative shorthand in fiction a lot of the time, which, is lazy writing sometimes we're just trying to say okay you know this guy's bad because he said this thing or you know he is wearing this thing or has this tattoo and people are just more complicated than that and characters should be more
0: complicated than that exactly yeah yeah exactly like you're you're lazy lazy writing that is exactly what it is
1: and when I wrote the Devourer you know that's about a Confederate soldier and I you know I made it his whole reason for joining the war wasn't around the slavery aspect. It was around like, you know, like an anti-government kind of thing. You know, he was, he was like an anti big government guy, an anti-federal guy. Um, but I, you know, and he was married to a native American woman, but there's still points in there where you can see that, you know, he's racist because he is a Confederate soldier. He is like a white dude in like the, you know, like right after the civil war, um, and I wanted to show that, you know, this guy could be an antagonist and he'd be a violent bad guy and he could be a loving father and he could be a racist, you know, like there were. There are
0: complexities, the yeah. people that people aren't just on the page, man. If you're it's, writing characters, there's complexities. That's it's even like the outlaw of Josie Wells. I mean, his whole life gets destroyed I mean, he, like, loses his faith. His whole family's killed. But what does he do? He joins the Confederate Army because the Union killed his family, you know? exactly. And, you but know, he's not the bad guy. He's the good guy, you know? It's yeah. weird.
1: <laughs> and I think, too, you know, if it was something like The Devoured. Another thing I wanted to show was I think that there's this idea of, like, you know, like binary good and bad. guy, yeah? like, you know, like, like what you're saying, we live in such a, a divided political culture that both sides see – and I hate the like I hate the term both sides because I feel like there shouldn't be a both sides. There shouldn't be just two it shouldn't be a binary political structure, like right. Like which is why I hate viewing the world from a political viewpoint. Um, like I, I refuse to because it's'm I'm, I'm not gonna like buy a prepackaged ideology from someone. Um, but if you take somebody like the main character and the devoured the old man, there's definitely like this cultural racism that's in him, but you see how he acts differently when he's actually around African American, like human beings, you know, like it's, there's a difference for some people where you, they can be either intellectually racist or emotionally racist in there's a disconnect the same way that like you might be religious but not believe in the supernatural, you know? um, And I think that that's, that's just one way to to explore the complexities of people is, is looking at something negative about them, whether it's racism or sexism, or, you know, if they're like an abusive person or drug addict or whatever, whatever the case may be um, in showing that that is not the entirety of the character
0: that's very well said man that's and it, so, is, it I'm is glad to
1: hear that because i thought i was rambling too much.
0: <laughs> no 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 i and i get it i feel like we're on the same page about this and it does it does get to the point where it is and and i understand people coming to you about like man i don't even want to ride anymore like what's the point but like you've got to as an artist art itself is a rebellious thing it is yeah. spiritual rebellion it has to be void of the construct of morality, like, uh, you know what I mean? Like, yes, there's ethics involved. There's always ethics involved, but at the same time, like, like you said, the binary structure of morality, it it doesn't work that way. And it definitely doesn't, doesn't, it doesn't apply to art, especially writing. You know, when I was writing black art boys choir, that was,
1: that was a really tough book for me putting it out. Cause I did, I did have a fear that it was a dangerous book, like a, like a physically dangerous book. Um, you know i was afraid that there's some parts might... with
0: the interactions with um lucian and the the teacher mm-hmm. that i'm like oh shit i'm like that's like crazy like that he had no like you did not give a shit to put it in there um and i think it's like a, it was like a super bold move that really worked with the narrative um thank you yeah but
1: i did have concerns about it because I, I said you know this could potentially inspire violence and at the end like at the end of the day art's the closest thing i have to a religion and you know like it was it was artistically exactly what i wanted it to be and i thought about putting an afterword in there and kind of being like hey you know don't go shoot people kind of thing but at the same point i felt that over explaining the book kind of ruins it because one of the things i love about art is that you can put out something and someone takes a completely different message than what you intended. Um, And I think that that's beautiful because once you let it into the world, it's not yours anymore, man. It's everyone's and you don't get to say how someone interprets it or how they feel about it. Um, And if they take something from it, that some sort of value or some sort of message that's completely at at odds with your belief system or what you intended, you know, tough shit, man. Like, right. Yeah. Like, you know, you did something something you made expanded beyond you like it became more than you and you can't control that like you know um it kind of goes into that whole like love crafty and like do not call upon that which you cannot put down <laughs> kind of thing um if you're going to make great art it's going to get out of control and it's it's going to become something more than you ever intended
0: i i i wrote a comic for graveland usual three um with which was illustrated by trevor Markwart, which I mean, he's a great artist, does this very old school style. And, but the whole plot was this guy, um, was obviously he had like struggled with stress and anxiety and mental illness, is going to his commute to work. And he sees this, like we were saying, this binary aspect of uh political ideology. I like put it in this character of like. You know, girls using their phone, drinking pumpkin spice lattes and like tweeting about it on their phones. And then another guy eating a burger with, you know, a Make America Great Again hat. Like not like anything that was really how I felt about people, but it was more so as a whole society being obsessed with this whole thing about like exposing people on social media. Like it's like some kind of moral justice. So in the end, basically the the, the main character starts freaking out. And there's this Lovecraftian monster tentacles and stuff that's telling him to kill everybody. (laughs) And in the end, the old lady kills him and it's called kids these days. And (laughs) you know, it it was, it was this whole like on the nose concept about just the culture of today. And I was like, I was like, man, I'm not like saying like kill people that I want people dead, (laughs) you know, obviously God, no, but there's that, there's that, you know, that anger, and that discontent that, that gets manifested in art in ways that you cannot control the way the narrative gets written down, that works, you know? You, yeah. you can't control that stuff.
1: Absolutely. You know, one of the, um, I guess one of the, the best compliments I got, uh, I've gotten on my work, um, my friend Joshua Rex is an author. He did, he beta read The the Envious Nothing for Me, and he put up a review on Goodreads, and one of the things he says is, um, uh these are, stories and poems seek a deep time approach to the human experience um and he's talking about how um yeah here it is devoid of ideological pretense and horror tropes um and that was very i don't know that was a relief for me to hear that you know that came across that way cuz i never want to I never want to tell people what to think with my fiction. You know, I want to ask them questions, but it's not my job to tell them, to answer those questions.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Interpretation is totally up to the audience. I I feel like that is key. You know what I mean? Of course you have your own perspective and place and source where your stories come from. But in in the end it's, you know, the audience can, audience can perceive it how they want. They have every right to perceive it how they want.
1: Exactly. You know, as far as the, um, as far as going back to like, you know, the, the binary political kind of thing and, and the, the cancel culture stuff, the, I mean, the only thing, I guess the last thing I have to say about it is, you know, once again, I'm never worried about it for myself because like, as far as I'm concerned, I'm uncancelable because I'll do this shit, like I said, on like a printer paper if I need to, but I feel that anybody who's like on a crusade to, to go after anybody who's morally, you know, doesn't meet their fucking, their, their moral guidelines. I've often found that these people, if you go look at their Goodreads bibliographies, they're really anemic. Um, (laughs) So if, you know, anybody who's really hung up on this sort of thing, they're, they're, they're out for blood generally they don't have much else going on. So my advice is to just ignore it and let them yell into the corner and not write and not create art. Let them, let them be prolific on Twitter and you know, you go about making art.
0: Oh, I mean, the end of the end of the day, dude, they're not taking care of my kids. They're not cashing my checks. Yep. I still, No matter what they say, I'm still always going to have a house. Yeah. <laughs> I'm still always going to be doing the same thing every day. It's not going to kill me. So it doesn't matter and you know i feel like that people need to people need to disconnect once in a while absolutely um but dude i had a blast talking um i don't want to hang you up too long uh i i'm really excited for the envious nothing if you want to maybe give a shout out to where we can get the envious nothing where we can order it and uh you know say some final words dude please go ahead
1: Yeah, uh, so the Emmy is Nothing, um, a collection of literary rune is available at hippocampuspress.com right now. Um, I'm not sure when the ebook is going to be up for pre-order on Amazon, but hopefully soon. I will be at Necronomicon in Providence, um, and I'll be signing the book. I will possibly also be working at the Weird House Press table, if there is one. Um, And one thing I didn't get to talk about, which I just want to shout out real quick, is the editor, in, or one of the editors, of uh, Weird House Magazine, which Weird House Magazine number one is coming out. It's up for pre-order at Weirdhousepress.com, um, and I'm very proud of that. It's a it's a very cool magazine as well. Um, so yeah, Hippocampuspress.com, Weirdhousepress.com, and um, and also there's a special edition of Blackheart Boys Choir a hardcover at Weird House Press, and I'm donating all my royalties from that to relief funds uh, to UNICEF to for relief in the Ukraine so um, if you're interested in that that's another thing you can check out